Thank you, guys. Hey, uh, we're in the second week of a new series on the life of David. And interestingly, I've been preaching for a long time. I've never preached on First and Second Samuel. We're not going to preach the entire books. We're going to be taking different sections of both books and looking at sort of the big themes from the life of David and seeing how that applies to us in the gospel. Today, we are turning to David and Goliath, this classic story, right? And so I want to turn to 1 Samuel 17, 32 through se- uh, 37, and 43 through 47. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If not, it's found in your bulletin and will be up on the screen as well. And I'm going to read us the passage. And um, we're going to be drawing from all of 1 Samuel 17, but I'm going to be reading from these uh, shorter sections. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. And if not, follow along up on the screen, starting in verse 32. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, uh, and David said The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion. And from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Verse 43. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to him, you you come to me with a sword and with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with swords and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it into your hand. This is the word of the Lord. So last week I gave a summary of the Old Testament up to this point. So if you're newer to Christianity and newer to the Bible, uh, I kind of started in Genesis 1, 1 and worked my way up to this point of the story. And so if you've, if you've not heard that before, this might be a great way to get a summary and, and better understand the Bible. When I was a brand new follower of Jesus, I felt constantly confused. And when I would, would read the Bible, I would not understand the context in the Old Testament and so forth. And so you might find that helpful. But let me give you a brief summary right now of what's happening in 1 Samuel. David has been anointed by Samuel, who was one of the judges of Israel, and he was the last judge. He had been anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel. Saul is the very first king of Israel, but he's been disobedient. He has not followed God's commands. 
But even though David has been anointed as king, it seems like no one knows about this or cares as David's day-to-day experience hasn't changed at all. Um, He is still a shepherd boy. He's still running errands for his dad, and his brothers are still treating him like he's just some punk kid. Now, this story is epic in its proportions. I mean, it's, it's huge, and it's well known. Chances are good that you've heard of this. And on the first part of the scene enters Goliath, and he represents fear in the story. We have a classic enemy in Goliath, the Philistine. Even his name, Goliath, is terrifying, if you think about it. I mean, Goliath, it sounds huge and menacing. And the Philistines are the people who were living in the promised land when the Israelites arrived, and the Lord had called them to drive them out of the promised land, but they were too fearful to do so because they were numerous and they were powerful, and so they only did a partial job. And in our story, we find the Israelites and the Philistine armies encamped at the base of opposite mountains in the valley of Sukkot. And the valley floor is only about a mile of a wide apart. So imagine this scene for a minute. There are these two huge armies. One is based at the bottom of one uh, mountain. The other is at, encamped at the bottom of the other mountain, and there's only about a mile separating them in this valley floor. And you can sort of imagine what it's like. For 40 consecutive days, they sat there, and Goliath would march out across the valley floor towards the Israelites, and he would taunt them, calling them every name in the book, and trying to get one of them to fight him. And he would say things like, Choose a man and send him down to fight me, and if he kills me, we will serve you, but if I kill him, the Israelites will serve us. Goliath is described as six cubits, which puts him at about nine feet tall, and you may say, well, scientifically, that's impossible, but I just looked up this week the tallest man on record, and he was eight foot eleven, so it's not completely out of the realm of possibilities, but other uh, texts and manuscripts that uh, scholars have found Uh, call it four cubits, so that's about six foot nine. Regardless, and it could have been like football weight or height, you know, my son uh, played football. He was mainly uh, a soccer player in high school, but he also played football for his four years in high school. This is my oldest son, and I don't know if you've noticed how they doctor weights and height, right, in in these football programs. On a good day, he's a buck 35, maybe, and they had him at like 5'11", 165. You've seen it, like... (laughs) It's not happening. Regardless, Goliath is huge. He's giant-like. Other, oh, let's see. So fear and dread are absolutely ruling the camp. And among this fear-filled army are David's three oldest brothers. They're just as scared as the rest of them. Now, Goliath. Fear. He represents fear. He represents dread. Now, David enters the scene, and he represents faith. David is this heroic figure. David's father, Jesse, sends David back and forth to the front lines, and he's kind of like a Jimmy John's delivery boy. He's bringing, he's bringing meat, and he's bringing cheese, and taking it to his brothers and the captains of the army. He's young, he's overlooked, and like every great hero in waiting, he looks ordinary and looks plain, but he's not like Luke Skywalker, like Harry Potter. He has greatness in him, but no one knows it yet. The battle lines are drawn again, and Goliath comes out, and the men of Israel run the opposite direction. So it's this common scene. Goliath comes out, he comes out in power, and the armies of Israel run and flee. 
No one steps up, even though Saul has promised that whoever kills him will be rich, get tons of, of, of money, uh, he'll get to marry the, the daughter of Saul, and he'll never have to pay taxes. And in spite of that, no one's stepping up. And so David overhears these army talking about, like, they'll get this, and they'll get this, and this, and he goes, no, wait a minute, they'll get what? And he's kind of debating with them, like, talking about, like, what's going on? They'll get what? They'll get the daughter, they'll get the money, no taxes. And then while that happens, the brothers enter into the scene, these three older brothers, and it's so funny, it's such a teenage drama. And they're like, why aren't you back with daddy's sheep? Why aren't you back home playing video games? What are you doing here? You're just bloodthirsty. You just want to see the blood. And I think they're super jealous because Samuel had just been to their house, you know, in the previous chapter and had anointed him the future king of Israel. David, it's really funny, in the text says, what have I done now? It literally says that. <laughs> what is, was, was it not but a word? Can't I just ask a question? Even David couldn't get over teenage drama. Now, the main theme we see right here, though, there's a couple things. One, first of all, like, it's so sad that the people of God are often the ones that deny God. These brothers of his, the Israelite army, they should be ones who have faith, and this young man steps forward, and he's just an adolescent. We know he's not an adult, or he would have been in this army. He would have been there. He is still a young, he's not a young boy, he's not a child, but he's not yet a man either. He's somewhere in between. He's an adolescent. And in spite of that, he has faith, and yet he's getting so much grief from his brothers and the others. And the main thing I want us to see as we start today is this. Unbelief is the greater giant in this story, and it's the greater giant in your story also. Unbelief is a lack of faith. J.D. Greer is a pastor, and, uh, and it, he, he wrote a commentary on this section, and he says this, Goliath is not the real problem here. A leather strap and a little rock can fix him. The real menacing giant in the story is the unbelief that dominates the hearts of God's people. The obstacle is not in God. It's not found in God's opponent. It's found in God's own people. I suspect God was more insulted by Israel's disbelief than he was by Goliath's blatant, blasphemous defiance. Faith is such a powerful force. And so is fear. Faith can move you to do things you never thought possible before. When you actually believe God is leading you to something, calling you to something, and you step out and act, because you have to do that in order to actually live in faith, it's a powerful, powerful force, but fa fear is equally powerful. And the problem with fear and faith is they live in the same place. It's in our imagination where faith lives, and it's in our imagination and our hearts where fear also lives. If you think about it, the thing that we are thinking about with regarding faith, am I going to step out in faith, is in the, the, the place of our mind's eye. It's in our imagination. I remember what God has done for me in the past, and I, and I imagine what it will be like in the future as I step out in faith, and that's exactly where fear lives. It speaks to us, it calls us, and it describes some future that doesn't include God. When we live in fear, and we often do, we're living in like functional unbelievers, even though you may be a strong Christian. In that moment when you're being dominated by fear, you're living functionally like an atheist or an unbeliever. You're letting unbelief cripple you, and that's exactly what's happened to this army. Now, interestingly, 
it was 14 years ago today that our moving ma- van uh, drove into Tempe, Arizona to deliver our stuff. Uh, I was a pastor in Cincinnati, Ohio, and felt called to plant a church, which led me on this journey to pray about it, to go get evaluated, to determine whether we should do this and all this kind of thing. My wife and I both, and we prayed and prayed and prayed, and through some wild circumstances, I'll have to tell you another day, we felt called to move to Phoenix and start this church from scratch. Now, the problem with that was we didn't know anyone here. Uh, we had never lived here. We'd only been to the airport before except for the visits when we were praying about moving out here. And it just didn't make any sense to our family and to our friends. And we had all kinds of detractors, okay? Normally, I would say, honor your parents, listen to them, and so forth. But my own stepfather came to me right before I left and said, I think you're making a huge mistake. <laughs> just what you want to hear from dad, right? I mean, like... Thank you. And he said, you know, like, I know you're called to plant a church, but you could do that in Cincinnati. You could do that in Indiana, like where there are people. There's like a bunch of people at your church in Ohio that if you plant a church will join you immediately. Like, why don't you do that? Why are you making it so hard? And my only answer that I can think of is this, is one, we really did feel called to it. We felt uniquely called to this. But secondly, I had this desire at this moment, and it seems crazy now at some time, but to live in such a way that we were stepping out in faith and having to see God move. Up to that point, I did not feel like I'd had this opportunity to step out and act and watch God work. I had this mentor that would always say, attempt something so great for God that it's doomed to fail unless God is in it. And you can be really foolish with that, so be careful. But I wanted to attempt something by faith that it would be doomed to fail if God was in it. That sounds great in theory, right? So the moving vans roll in, and it's fun, and we got this new house, and my kids show up at the airport, and my friend Jeff Reich joins me, and we go get them, and we bring them back to the house, and and her parents come in and visit for a week, and friends came in, and they, from Ohio, and helped us unpack, and everything is just fun, 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 until grandma and grandpa go back to North Carolina, and all the friends go back to Ohio, and it's just us, and we're looking at each other going, now what? We have to start a church. Okay, how are we going to do that? I don't know. You know, like, what do we do? Well, we can pray. There's that. We can do a little bit of networking, but we had to depend upon God. And right away, I felt this crippling fear. And all these ideas, all these things that would live in the future. What if you fail? What if nothing comes through? What if all the money you raise runs out before anybody even comes to church? No one seems to care anyway. No one's heard of you. No one knows you. There's no name to this church. You don't meet anyone. Like, how are you ever going to do this? And it was so crippling, and at some point I had to quit the pity party and just step out, not once, but daily, and just say, I have to get out of bed and walk by faith and pray. And it was terrifying, not for a day, but for months, even almost a year of terrifying fear but that had to be battled, right, by faith. So I have a really hard question for you. Um, are you doing anything right now that requires faith? Are you attempting anything at all right now that would require faith in your life? And I'm not talking about faith in faith. I'm talking about faith in Jesus. And there are circumstances in life that get thrust upon us that require faith. There's disease and, and sickness and death and poverty and, and all these things like trial, tribulation, sickness, they come our way and then they require faith But are you doing anything actively by decision, by choice, to step out in such a way that you know you will have to live 
by faith. We'll keep talking about that in a minute. So some of the men went to King Saul and they told him about this young crazy guy named David that wanted to fight Goliath. And Saul is so desperate, he's willing to entertain this conversation with this young man. So David comes up and they start talking and and Saul says to David, look, you're too young, you can't do this. But David says, let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Your servant will go and he'll fight. So Saul says, you're crazy, you can't do that, you're too small. And he says, look, I'm a shepherd, all right? And there are times when lions have come and taken my sheep and bears, and when they do, I run after them and I grab them by the beard and I slice off their head. (laughs) Yes! I love this kid. I mean, he's crazy, but that's cool, right? 1 Samuel 17, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Now, listen, what's the emphasis on, and David, David's, I mean, he's bad to the bone, man. Let's face it. This kid, this is an adolescent who's chasing down bears and lions. If you go camping, you know, you don't chase after a bear. Or a, we have bears and lions in Arizona, do we not? And you don't chase after them. You get in your car and you run. He's chasing after them. And yet, where is the emphasis of his narrative with Saul? It's on the Lord. The Lord delivered me. The Lord did this. The Lord did this. And the Lord will be with me. David's confidence is not in himself. It's not in his power. It's not in even his own faith. It's in in the Lord. And God's faithfulness in the past is what strengthened him for faith in the present. present. So faith grows through walking on a journey with God. And David had been. He was doing bold things like chasing down bears and lions, believing that God would deliver him. And it's possible that that was part of the supernatural power that God had given him. In chapter 16, the Holy Spirit rushed upon David and anointed him. That was a special outpouring of the Spirit that the rest of us don't have like that as king of Israel, right? We do have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Hear me. But he had a special anointing as king. So perhaps that's how he got all this power to go slay bears and lions But the point is, his emphasis is on the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He stepped out in faith. Now, back to the rest of the story. There's this hilarious scene where King Saul comes along and wants to give him his armor, right? But he's he's a kid still. He's this youth. He's an adolescent. It's not going to fit. Saul is tall, and he's a big guy. David has no armor at all, and his only weapon are like five smooth stones that he finds and this leather, you know, uh, strap that he's going to swing these stones with. And he marches out across the field towards the enemy. And Goliath is offended. Are you kidding me? Am I a dog? It's like you're throwing sticks at me. Like this is, and I think in a way he felt sorry for David. He's like, I'm going to tear this kid from limb to limb. This is horrible. And then David replies to him. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. You know, 
Goliath is like the Oregon Ducks. He's got the brand new helmet and all the swag, and he's got a javelin and a spear, and it's all by Nike, and it's got all the swooshes everywhere. It's just got state-of-the-art. He's been training as a warrior his entire life. But, But David says, I've got none of that, and I come to you with the Lord of hosts. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I'll strike you down, and I'm going to cut off your head, and I'm going to give your dead body to the beast of the field. It's a man, man. This guy's wow. And that's exactly what happens. That's the story. David marches out in faith. He throws the rock, hits him in the head, knocks him out, and he cuts his head off. Goliath's confidence was in his strength, his, in his technology, all the javelin and the spear, his, his span. I mean, he's enormous. Like, if he thinks this little kid's going to come right at him, he's just going to hold him off. There's nothing he can do to me. You know, his experience, he's been a warrior, he's been trained, he's got all this armor. He's got all the confidence in the world in his own attributes, and all that David has is faith in the Lord. There's the story. Now, how are you supposed to apply that to yourself a long time later and as a believer in the Lord? How are you supposed to apply it? What's your big takeaway? J.D. Greer also writes, we love to use this as an analogy about the underdog. No matter the odds, you can do it. Just believe in yourself. Christians are as prone to anyone to fall prey to this sort of interpretation. If you trust God, he'll give you the victory over your giants. Just claim victory and he'll give it to you. And so we baptize whatever issue we're facing and we spiritualize it, use spiritual language, say God's going to help me overcome this and this and this and this. And hear me, he loves you and he wants to assist you, but that's not the way to interpret this passage. It's not simply to believe like we can do it. We're the underdog. Now, where do you find yourself in this story? Whom should you identify with in this story? And as you read it, the typical imagination, especially, you know, for young kids and stuff, is to say, well, like, I'm like David. I want to be like David. I want to follow like David. But as I read this story and I think about it, I think you and I are far more like Saul and the Israelite army than we are like David. Running in fear. Sitting around the campfire going, you're going to fight him? I'm not going to fight him. You're going to fight him? No way am I going to fight him. You seen that guy? I mean, he's 6'9". <laughs> I'm not fighting that guy. He's got... We usually identify with David in the story, but the truth is we're more fearful, more running away, more like the army itself. And notice in this story that there is representative warfare, and this is important for you to apply the gospel to this. David stands before Israel, and his victory is Israel's victory. And Goliath stands for the Philistine, and his victory would have been victory for them, but his defeat was defeat for them. And in our story, what is your greatest giant? What is your greatest enemy? And we believe it's our money, it's our our financial problems, it's our debt. Maybe it's even a disease that you have. Uh, Maybe it's, you know, it's a relational problem, it's divorce, it's death, it's somebody's left you, somebody's denied you, somebody's done some great harm to you. But your greatest problem is not your job. It's not your lack of money, it's not your debt, it's not your broken relationships, it's not even cancer or heart disease. Your greatest giant is the fact that every one of us is broken and fallen in sin, and it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. 
that our greatest giant, our greatest problem is this. We have selfishness worked into our hearts that every one of us has lived isolated from God, rebelled against God, that there's a distance and an alienation that exists between us and God, and the wages of sin, according to the Bible, is death. There's spiritual death, and there's physical death, and every one of us is going to die, and that is the greatest giant and the greatest enemy we face. And into that scenario, in walks an unlikely hero, Jesus of Nazareth. And he is beaten to a pulp, and he's bloody, and his shirt and his is torn and his clothing, and he's carrying his own cross to Golgotha, and he is crucified between two common thieves. And we believe at this church that there is actual, literal, real evil in the world, that there's a real devil and real demons that would have celebrated in that moment. Imagine their fear. This is the Messiah. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And now he's bloody to a pulp. He's dying, and now he's dead. Imagine the celebration in their hopes of like the conquering hero. You call that a hero, the most unlikely of heroes. But then on the third day, he awakes, resurrected in power. And he overcomes death, and he overcomes sin, and he overcomes hell. I want to quote to you from one of the greatest songs, I think, written in a long time. It's called Death in His Grave, and we sing it from time to time here. On Friday, a thief. On Sunday, a king. Laid down in grief, but awoke with the keys of hell on that day. The firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ, put death in his grave. Jesus, a common carpenter, a man, humble in his demeanor, nothing to look at physically, from a poor family, strides in in humility and faith in the living God, and he is God as well. And he puts death in its grave. This is your hero. This is the greater David. And here's the reality. Because Jesus slayed your greatest giant, you can face your lesser giants with faith. You must step out in faith. You've got to live this out. But the point of the story is not to say, like, you can be just like David and you can slay the giant and so forth. Christ has slain your giant. Now let that, that, the beauty of that and the memory of that and the power of that empower you to live by faith in the minor giants you now face. You can face all the relational issues that you're going through right now. Someone has rejected you. Somebody that you loved has left you, denied you, broken your heart, perhaps even divorced you. You can face that because Christ overcame your greatest giant. You can face death. You can face financial trouble. You can face trouble at work. You can face children that have utterly broken your heart and walked away and denied you, denied God. You can face even your own death knowing that Jesus conquered our sin and death and the grave and you will rise again because Christ overcame it all. Now how do we do this? Recalling God's faithfulness in the past strengthens our faith in the present. This is what David did. When I faced the bear and the lion, the Lord was with me and he delivered me. And because of that, I can now go face this other giant, face him down. 
David's faith was fueled by all the times God was faithful to him in the past. I can face Goliath because God spared me from the lion and the bear. David had faith, and then he acted on it. And this is something we really don't talk about a whole lot anymore. You have to act on your faith. You have to move out, not to be right with God. I'm not talking about being saved. I'm talking about growing in the Lord and living this out. When you have faith, faith actually causes you to action. It moves you out. Because I believe this, I will move out. And I go back to the same question I asked you just a minute ago. What in your life requires faith right now? Of course, of course there are things that have been pressed upon you. Me too, you know. There are things right now that have been forced upon me this year that require faith. But I've got to ask myself the tough question, am I doing anything to step out in faith? Am am I by choice doing anything that would require faith for God to have to show up into that circumstance and act? Something that's going to require me to pray, depend on him. What would be something that, if you did it, would require faith? And why are you holding back? If you can't think of anything, you're like, man, I can't, I can't think of anything that I'm doing that would require faith. You've got to ask yourself, why? Why? What would be something that would require faith? Serving. You are hardwired to make life all about yourself to make your life all about you, me too, to be a consumer. We are people who don't produce hardly anything